Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books Network. I am Vladislav Lilic, doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. Today, I have the immense pleasure of hosting Dr. Natasha Wheatley, assistant professor of history at Princeton University. Dr. Wheatley is the co-editor of two recent volumes on society, law, and power in world and central European histories. And she has published a series of articles and essays across the most influential scholarly journals, including Law and History Review, Slavic Review, and Past and Present. In the next 45 or so minutes, we will be discussing her riveting debut monograph, The Life and Death of States, Central Europe, and the Transformation of Modern Sovereignty, hot off the Princeton University Press. Beautifully written and entwining multiple intellectual projects and interests, The book narrates the transition from empire to nation-states in the heartlands of Europe, once governed by the Habsburg Empire. The life and death of states traces the modern history of sovereignty over 100 tumultuous years, explaining how a regime of nation-states, theoretically equal under international law, emerged from the ashes of a dynastic empire. This bold and captivating study reveals how Habsburg Europe was the crucible for our contemporary world order. Dr. Wheatley, thank you for joining New Books Network and for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. As is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how your previous intellectual and research trajectories had led you to write The Life and Death of States. How did you first become consumed with the histories of the Habsburg Empire and its peoples? Yeah, that's a great question. And as ever, there are many threads that are, that lead <laughs> to, to this this odd place. Um, you know, I was at graduate school. Uh, I started at Columbia in 2008. And it was a period, I think, you know, coming out of the, the 1990s, where there was a lot of new interest in thinking about modern European history in general, from the perspective of Central and East and, and Southern Europe. Um, obviously, in the wake of the end of the Cold War and then the Yugoslav Wars, uh, we were thinking again about these questions of nation and state and the problems of their alignment or disalignment. Um, and I, I think um, suddenly it seemed like rather than the, the standard stories so centered on Britain or France, um, but actually trying to think about these major questions of the transformation of the order of nations and states, that actually it seemed really productive and interesting and exciting to be thinking about them from these areas that we once thought of as the peripheries of Europe, right? But that actually perhaps were dealing in, in the most sort of explicit and and often violent, but also productive and creative ways um, with those major questions. And so um, I was certainly influenced um, by that. And, and one of my advisors, Mark Mazawa, was a kind of um, kind of key figure. And I think uh, a lot of that realignment. So, so that was very significant for me. At the same time, there was this explosion of, of the new international history, um, both in terms of the history of international law and order, 
um, but also kind of a new wave of imperial histories that were especially interested in things like legal pluralism, right? A, a, a phrase and an idea that we perhaps today especially associate with the work of Lauren Benton, but also many others, you know, Fred Cooper and Jane Burbank were in this area too. And I was intrigued by that literature that it, it, it tended to just completely bypass uh, East Central Europe. Um, and precisely for those reasons of alignment and state and of misalignment of state and nation that I mentioned, it seemed to me that East Central Europe had so much to say to those questions um, about law and ordering and nations and diversity uh, and plurality. And at the same time, those working on places like the Habsburg Empire didn't seem to have too much of a sense of that new literature on empire and legal order. And so I was interested in what might happen if we thought these literatures together, right? If we kind of cross-fertilized them um, and brought these new set of questions uh, to bear on East Central Europe. Um, so that was definitely some uh, initial inspiration. Um but like all these things, right, they have deeper legacies or, I mean, deeper inheritances as well in our biographies. And um, I also came to this as someone who was very interested in intellectual history. I have a, a real passion for, for ideas and concepts. And I had become interested in law as a way of kind of thinking about the relationship or exploring the relationship between ideas and power, right? Law is a discourse that is in some ways bringing ideas to bear um, on the world in, in a very, you know, often very concrete and very uh, consequential way. Um, and um, within that set of interests, um, you know, some, some deep kind of predispositions hark back, I think, to my own biography. I um, grew up in Australia and came of age politically in the 1990s. And this was a period in Australia where the major kind of moral issue in the public sphere was that um, of Indigenous land rights, you know, of the rights and standing of uh, the Aboriginal people of Australia. And there were a series of, of landmark high court decisions that kind of ricocheted around the settler colonial world, um, which were about recognizing the survival of indigenous rights in land through, you know, the several centuries of European colonization of the country uh, so that they still survived into the present. And this was, I mean, it was politically gripping and morally gripping, but it was also sort of intellectually gripping um, because this whole idea that rights could sort of survive centuries um, of, 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 you know, col of colonization, even though no one had really noticed them, quote unquote, uh, before and survive into the present to have new consequences for contemporary Australia struck me, you know, what struck me out of that was not only the sort of um, the, the myth-making and the fantasies and the sort of creativity involved in legal argument, but also the significance of that act of, of creation um, and just how sort of um, plastic legal ideas were. And um, in some ways, some of those interests in how rights survive through time um, and the relationship of sovereignty and history have found their way uh, into this book as well. The interpretive centerpiece of the book is the argument that the empire stood as a laboratory for modern legal thought and a gallery of experiments in modern governance. Is laboratory an analytical or an actor's category or perhaps both? And how has it helped you shed new light on the place of Habsburg Europe in world history? Hmm, great question. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of people are using those sort of terms these days. And, and to some extent, that's nothing new. We can think back to a very influential strand of scholarship that really presented, especially Vienna around the year 1900 as the kind of birthplace of the modern world, right? This is the kind of Karl Schoska line that pointed out that, you know, so many key theories of modernity, um, whether we think about Freud's psychoanalysis or the sort of artistic movements of Klimt and Schiele or, you know, modern music or modern architecture, uh, you know, were born and, and were really thriving um, in Vienna around 1900. And it goes for politics as, uh, as well, if we think about this is the sort of um, training ground of, of, of both Adolf Hitler, you know, and Theodore Herzl. Um, and so, to some extent, one thing I'm doing here is is bringing law into that sort of, you know, generational ferment and showing how legal thought, too, was undergoing a period of, of crisis and renewal and immense creativity uh, in this time uh, and place. It's interesting what you say about um, whether or not this idea of a laboratory is an actor's category or not. I mean, certainly in some ways in which I'm using it, um, no, it's definitely me looking back and showing um, how this time and place was extremely consequential um, for, for legal thought and for theories of the state in ways that actors might not have entirely grasped. But I think it's it's also true that people were very aware of the particular problems that the the question of statehood and sovereignty had in, in Habsburg Central Europe. And so we can see it, even if not with that term um, precisely, as also a sort of um, actor's concept. Um, so a number of my actors, so take someone like Georg Jelinek, who's one of um, the key jurists in this story. He was... Um, was this thinker who's thinking the second half of the 19th century, and he was son of, of Vienna's kind of most famous rabbi. And he's really, it's, it's it, he's really quite explicit about it. He says all these modern theories of sovereignty, uh, right, whether they're coming from people like Baudin or Rousseau or Thomas Hobbes, you know, they all turn on the idea of one singular focal point for sovereignty, right, one ultimate highest power at the center of everything. Uh, a kind of singular and, and unified sovereignty. And he said, these theories just don't work for places like the Habsburg Empire that are really plural, kind of all the way down. They're conglomerate states composed of, of several smaller polities um, that have long traditions of, 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 of plurality in, in different forms. And so he's, he very consciously says, we need new theories, right? We, what, why can't we theorize from here and come up with theories that actually apply, um, that, that do justice to these sorts of state formations, rather than presuming that Habsburg, the states like the Habsburg Empire are like aberrations, right, or deviations or sort of problems that need to be solved. Um, you know, you had a lot of people saying, well, precisely because uh, the Habsburg Empire was this extremely diverse and complex place that was a kind of anachronism amongst modern states. And he's saying no. <laughs> and, and, and from there, he actually looks out around the world and says, look, in fact, when you think about it, the vast majority of the world states at that point, the late 19th century, were plural rather than singular, and that this is actually sort of the main story uh, of statehood at that point. And so he sort of turns theory back around against the Western Europeans, the, the kind of the French and the British theories, and said, no, it's actually more globally useful to think from a place like this. Uh, we can understand 
more. So, so I, I use it, um, you know, the the empire to explore this this incredible kind of two generations of legal thinkers who come from the Habsburg lands and really revolutionise legal thought. So Jelinek is one of them, um, but some listeners may have also heard of Hans Kelsen, who's kind of the most significant legal philosopher, one of the most significant legal philosophers of the 20th century. Uh, he's also a kind of Habsburg product. And so I'm, I'm interested in the kind of outsized influence that these thinkers have on the history of constitutional and international law in general. But it isn't just an intellectual history, and this is very important. I'm also just as interested in the way in which um, a lot of these big questions with huge theoretical kind of significance are playing out in politics, right, in the public sphere, in the constitutional shape of the empire uh, as well. So from 1848, um, you know, the empire, the emperor concedes to an imperial constitution and then the empire cycles through several. And I see them as a sort of like practical theorizing about the state as they cycle through different versions um, of, of what the state um, should look like or how it should be structured. And these these are also sort of, um, you know, this constitutional practice is also a laboratory in the sense that a number of the models and arrangements that come out of that Habsburg constitutional set of experiments are then picked up and uh, debated all around the world. So if you think about something like uh, the the dual monarchy, this dual sovereignty we get um, as a result of the 1867 compromise in which two halves of the empire were ostensibly completely sovereign on their own terms and yet still somehow joined together, um, this this compound sovereignty is double sovereignty um, that gets you know debated by Irish nationalists as a kind of template for their autonomy perhaps within the British Empire. It gets debated in uh, the Ottoman Empire as a potential model for the autonomy of Egypt, um, and it even gets debated as far away as, as the subcontinent um, in the mid twentieth century when uh, people are thinking about ways of potentially trying to keep India and Pakistan joined somehow. You know even as partition loomed uh, in the nineteen forties. So these are an incredibly fertile uh, set of ideas, both in theory and in practice, um, that come out of the Habsburg lands. The narrative commences in the aftermath of the aborted revolutions of 1848. In your previous answer is a perfect segue into the following question. You show in fascinating detail how post-revolutionary attempts to square the multi-ethnic and legally plural character of the empire with discursive and practical demands of uniform state law and state power, opened up myriad legal conundrums. How did these conundrums unfold and how did they relate to other such 19th century cases of modern state formation? Something about which you've already said. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you. So yeah, the book really opens in 1848. And of course, all stories have prehistories. But the, the reason that I, I picked this start point is that it's the beginning of this uh, a constitutional tradition in the Habsburg lands in the sort of modern sense. I mean, of course, there were foundational laws before that point. But the whole idea of having a modern constitution, the sense of a, a single written document, right? Um, that's what really uh, uh, emerges at the center of, of political life at this point. Um, as a concession from the emperor because of these these revolutions um, that really brought the empire to its knees, right? People have actually written about the way in which the empire looked more like it might collapse in 1848 than it, than it did in 1914 uh, when it was, you know, comparatively strong. And so this was a really vulnerable, weak moment for the empire. And, uh, and so, yes, the... 
the emperor concedes to having an imperial constitution. Also, well, well and good in theory. But what's the first problem that you encounter when you want to try and draft a constitution? You need to write down, you know, what the empire is. You need to describe it in law. And that proved uh, unbelievably difficult and controversial. Uh, There was no sort of description of what the empire was that everyone could agree to. Because this was a polity that had been formed really gradually and slowly over centuries, right? And it was, um, it had been stitched together from different um, medieval and early modern polities like Bohemia in Hungary, Moravia, and so on. Um, and, you know, the original kind of uh, status of those unions uh, left the independence of each of those lands uh, intact, right? They retained their own sort of rights and legal orders and, and a lot of autonomy. And uh, the the union was in large part restricted to the kind of shared monarch that they now had so that the same person, you know, was king of Bohemia and king of Hungary. And that so these two ruling identities overlapped in this person's body, but otherwise remained, you know, quite distinct. Uh, And so trying to figure out what the status of these different component lands were by the time you reach the mid-19th century uh, was really difficult because on the one side that autonomy, traditional autonomy, had been whittled down and replaced um, uh, by a lot of centralised powers, you know, emanating from Vienna, especially in the era of enlightened absolutism in the mid-18th century, And so they certainly weren't fully autonomous anymore, and yet that old sort of legal structure remained theoretically valid. And so what you get when you you have the attempt to write a constitution in 1848 is a really interesting uh, conversation about whether these old polities, these component polities inside the empire, are still states or not. So you have to have a kind of first order discussion about, well, what is a state? What are the attributes that a state has? Uh, can a state, can, it, can something be a state and not sovereign, right? Could, could Bohemia be a state, um, but actually not have international standing, right? Uh, where, uh, or um, could Bohemia be a state without its own citizenship, for example? Uh, and so you get this sort of, um, they have to kind of debate these principles sort of um, uh, in the first instance, right? And kind of theorize them all the way down. And so no one um, articulation of this empire, um, you know, kind of has lasting authority. So you have this first round of debates in, in 1848 and 49, uh, and then a sort of some slow return to absolutism in the 1850s, and then a new set of constitutions in the 1860s, um, 1860, 1861, and then especially this big compromise in 1867, the settlement, uh, and so I kind of look at cumulatively at all of these constitutions that sort of write over one another and, and moot different descriptions of the empire. And I, I somewhat playfully call them, you know, the diary that the empire kept about itself, right? Is it, it's, it's constantly um, re-articulating uh, the nature uh, of its own order. And I'm very interested in what this can tell us about the genesis of modern ideas of sovereignty and statehood uh, in general and and in ways that resonate far beyond the Habsburg case. Because I think um, this process that I've just described is really quite uh, unusual in in the sort of degree of consciousness, the degree of reflection uh, that it required. Because let's just compare it to some other neighbouring states to get a sense of why this this story, I think, is quite, uh, you know, unique. 
if we looked at to France, um, you know, there, of course, we had this very dramatic revolution in 1789, which uh, abolished all of those traditional laws and polities and autonomies, um, you know, that were completely normal and common all over Europe uh, in the early modern period. Um, but they really collapsed uh, and violently abolished um, in, in the revolution and, and replaced with this, you know, modern standardized uh, you know, uniform law. And so you no longer have these old, you know, dukedoms and little um, other principalities. Instead, you've got these um, departments, these departments that are, are, are uniform and created by the central authorities um, and are delegated from the centre rather than entities that precede uh, that, that central power. And so you don't have this problem of all these historic rights and their status in the present you might say, well, Britain, you know, didn't have a revolution like France. It still had all these old traditional laws kind of theoretically on the books. But in Britain, of course, they never really try and write a constitution. <laughs> you know, famously, Britain still doesn't have a, a modern constitution. And so they don't have, they can just sort of let all of that old law <laughs> um, uh, exist there sort of, of, of fuzzily off stage and never have to actually reckon with with what it means in modernity and, and what of that, all those old traditions is still sort of living or standing in the present. And then, you know, it differs also because like another kind of classic path into sovereign modernity is to appeal to the nation as a sort of ethnic entity that could ground, you know, the coherence and the unity um, of the state. And and that's really the path taken, you know, to the north in Germany, where in this period in the 19th century, you had this very influential historical school of law that said that law emanates sort of organically from das Volk, you know, from the people. And that's another way then, um, uh, another tradition of thinking about uh, statehood and sovereignty and understanding its legitimacy. Um, but that strategy didn't work in the Habsburg lands either because you had some 12 different, you know, language or ethnic groups in the empire. And so, you know, did, did um, the empire have, you know, 12 different, you know, language souls, uh, you know, that, that were emanating, you know, that were organically producing a legal order? It just seemed implausible. Uh, and so the Habsburg Empire really had to forge its own path, um, I argue, into sovereign modernity in a very conscious and explicit way. Um, and, and that's why I think it has a, a really um, big claim uh, on our interest where we can watch sort of modern law trying to come to terms uh, with its own um, uh, legacies, like what it owes the sort of early modern period and how to translate those earlier forms of statehood into ones that made sense uh, in, the, in the 19th century present. Fascinating. And fast forward into the 20th century, you contend that the empire's startling dissolution in 1918 crystallized the main dilemmas of modern international ordering that we have largely associated with the decolonization processes of the 1960s. How did the dissolution of the empire raise critical legal questions that still frame the contours of our world state system? Yeah, exactly. So the second half of the book pivots to what happens when the empire collapses. So, you know, there are two big arguments in the book about the relationship of the Habsburg Empire to the story of modern statehood. One really is, is the one I was just describing to do with the generation of sort of modern uniform states out of older networks of more patrimonial plural law. Uh, and then the second one is this major story about the statification of the world, right? I mean, how we go from a world of empires to a world of states. And I'm really interested in uh, making um, a case for the, the importance of the Habsburg Empire to this story, um, which I don't think is, has kind of been done before. 
And and that story of decolonization and the transformation of a world of empires into a world of states is, of course, as you say, um, uh, most closely associated uh, with the story of the decolonization of Asia and Africa in the 1950s and 60s, you know, as it should be. I mean, that's when you just have this absolutely epic explosion in the, the number um, of states in the world. Um, but what I'm interested in is that several of the key legal questions surrounding that process of the end of empire and the rise of nation states, we really see entering the kind of international legal discussion over the wreckage of the Habsburg Empire in 1918, 1919, when it collapses. Uh, because there too, you had to reckon with what happens when one sovereign dies and another takes its place. And it's a huge challenge for legal order. Um, because by that time, you know, we, we had sort of modern positivist ideas of law that saw the state as the key anchor for the legal order, right? States made law and they guaranteed law. Uh, they were the, the center point of the legal universe. And so if a state collapses, uh, what happens to law and legal order? Is it, is it just anarchy? How do you understand the generation of a new fount of legitimacy like that, right? The establishment of a new legal order. Um, and so these were really big questions uh, for, 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 you know, legal thinkers as well as diplomats and, and other statesmen to grapple with. Um, and, you know, of course, the Habsburg Empire is only one of several empires that collapses at the end of the First World War. But it's the only one that is completely re replaced by independent nation states, right? So if you think about, you know, the German Empire that loses its territories um, in Africa and in the Pacific, um, and the Ottoman Empire that loses uh, several uh, territories in the Middle East, you know, both of um, those sets of territories become mandates under the League of Nations mandate system um, and so aren't granted full sovereignty or autonomy. Um, and so it's in the wreckage of the Habsburg Empire that there are a lot of foundational questions about how new statehood emerges after empire. And this problem of post-imperial sovereignty, you know, really becomes, I argue, or I think we can argue, one of the key you know, yeah, problems of the 20th century uh, in general. Um, so what happens? How do you, yeah, how do you legitimize uh, a new state? So we usually tell this story in 1918 and 1919 as that of the Wilsonian moment. Um, many of your listeners will be familiar with that term. Uh, the idea that this was an era of self-determination and it was through appeals to self-determination that these new states sort of legitimized uh, their existence. So that's that's definitely true, but it's only part of the story because self-determination couldn't do all the necessary work um, in the first instance because uh, the allies, the victorious allies who'd won the war, we're never going to just uh, agree to enshrining self-determination as some sort of standard right because they themselves had huge empires. This is the British and the French. Uh, and they didn't want to just, you know, agree to the general idea that people could break away and form their own polities. That would have been incredibly destructive uh, to their own empires. Um, and also because self-determination couldn't actually do all of the work that uh, the new states in East Central Europe wanted. Um, for example, they were very keen to have 
the borders of their historic polities, right? So if you think about the extent of the historical borders of historic Hungary, you know, the, the borders that Hungary had inside the empire or the, the borders of the kingdom of Bohemia, those territories were extremely ethnically diverse. So the territory of historic Hungary wasn't just populated by uh, Magyar speakers and the territory of the kingdom of Bohemia was certainly not only populated by Czech speakers. Uh, and so you couldn't just appeal to like ethnic self-determination because these populations were also intermingled. And so how do you then justify a claim uh, to a territory where, you know, people speaking your language might not be a majority? And to kind of get around that problem, as well as to sort of just ground the legitimacy of their states in general, statesmen from these, these uh, successor states very consciously invoke the idea that they are returning, they are resurrecting uh, a polity or a state that existed before, right, that they're not actually new states. So Czechoslovakia claims that it inherits the legal personality, right, the legal standing or the legal identity of the Kingdom of Bohemia. And, uh, you know, post-war Hungary claims that it claimed it continues that legal mantle of the Kingdom of Hungary. And in both cases, these were polities that pre-existed the Habsburg Empire, uh, that survived within the empire in some sort of form, as some sort of suspended or slumbering state, and now ostensibly uh, you know, reappeared on the international stage after centuries of, of colonial rule um, from, or I shouldn't say colonial, imperial rule from Vienna. Um, and so um, these arguments were then debated uh, very uh, closely and attentively by, say, British diplomats in the British um, delegation to the peace conference there. And we can kind of watch everyone from claim makers from the region to these other sort of um, arbitrating powers trying to work out what the legitimate bases of new sovereignty in fact were, right? And we can see in the records of the peace conference that no one kind of actually really knew how to think about uh, this process. And so, again, we can watch this kind of experimental or, or laboratory-like process where everyone has to work out how you justify post-imperial sovereignty and on what basis. Uh, so I'm interested in that kind of process on its own terms and the way in which in uh, making those claims, thinkers from the Habsburg lands are really drawing on languages of constitutional claim making from within from from the imperial time. So they they'd been long claiming that Bohemia was still a state inside the Habsburg Empire, you know, or that Hungary had still survived. And so now they just scale up those uh, those claims from. Uh, you know, the imperial context to the international ones. So I'm pretty interested in the way in which, um, uh, you know, we often think about these imperial and international stories quite separately, but here you really have a sort of direct bleeding out of the imperial constitution into international law um, in, I think, really suggestive ways. And so what the book then does in its final chapter is shows how a number of those moves, we could say, a number of those arguments or what I call legal scripts, actually then travel um, all around the world in the era of global decolonization. So that idea of, of resurrected sovereignty becomes a key trope in the era of decolonization uh, because, again, it, it had a, a lot of political utility um, because no one wanted to be a new state that was sort of, um, you know, vulnerable and contingent on the recognition uh, of the great powers. And in fact, then 
always already sort of um, hamstrung by all kinds of legal agreements that had been made prior to that state's existence. So especially things like um, rights over natural resources that had often been signed away uh, uh, under the imperial period. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of a new state that wouldn't have the ability to challenge uh, those um, those rights, those pre-existing rights and obligations was a big problem in trying to re-establish the equality um, of these, uh, you know, different new polities around the world. And so you see jurists um, in India, in Algeria, in Indonesia, and in other places really interested in the idea that they were not new states, but in fact, original states, right, or old states who were returning to a sovereignty or resurrecting a sovereignty that they had had prior to imperial rule. So they make fascinating arguments saying, why is is uh, why should we reason from the imperial period as though that was sort of this ground zero, right, this year zero um, from which, you know, uh, we then establish, you know, these, these decolonizing states as new ones. Um, you know, history is longer than that. And, uh, you know, we claim the status of original members of the family of nations um, uh, rather than newcomers. The key protagonists of the book are several generations of Habsburg jurists, including men like above mentioned Georg Jelinek and Hans Kelsen, with whom our listeners might be familiar, who turned the region into what you see as a hothouse of legal innovation. Right? So as you underscore quite forcefully, their legal theorizing not only reflected complex imperial and post-imperial legal politics, but also exercise an outsized influence on modern international law in its central postulates. What explains this outsized and staying influence of central European jurisprudence? Yeah, so uh, another great question. Um, so, um, I mean, a lot of the things that I have already mentioned are really relevant here in the sense that I do think the complexities of statehood and sovereignty, you know, in this incredibly diverse conglomerate empire required everyone to be so conscious and explicit, right, about the ideas they were invoking, because none of the sort of standard positions or tropes or pre-existing theories worked in the Habsburg lands. And so precisely the same things that led some people to talk about the Habsburg empire as a kind of anachronism or whatever, uh, they, that those same problems generated um you know, in, incredible theoretical reflection that we can, I think, think of as the kind of high point of legal modernism. So I'm very interested in the way in which, you know, ostensible anachronism or, you know, archaism coexisted very intimately with the sort of most experimental and avant-garde legal theories. So it's a way of kind of getting out of, um, I think, some of the older problems in the field to do with how to situate uh, East Central Europe in this sort of like timeline of modernity. You know, it's not either or. <laughs> uh, this this was a place where, you know, very old things and very new things jostled up against one another, you know, in really dynamic and, and creative ways. So uh, the first thing I want to do with that that set of legal thinkers is um, make them very human, uh, right? I mean, I think a lot of people um, can think of the law as very uh, abstract and unforgiving and kind of cold. And I want to show how these thinkers are really trying to solve really key, concrete battles over political order, right? Uh, battles over the arrangement of powers. Um, and that ironically, even the most seemingly abstract, uh, you know, even the most sort of theological, things like Hans Kelsen's pure theory of law, which is his reputation <laughs> for, for being, you know, completely removed from reality, uh, were in fact 
responses to these really specific uh, problems that had that were so much sharper in the Habsburg lands and elsewhere. And so I, I'm really interested in the way in which, um, you know, the Habsburg Empire had no room for sort of lazy legal thinking and that you really had to pursue ideas all the way down there. And that's what kind of produces this incredible uh, theoretical creativity. Um, and I want to kind of show these thinkers then as as really fleshed, embodied humans. And so I spend a lot of time kind of resurrecting the worlds in which they live and um, want to give readers some sense of, um, you could say, even like the experience of, of thinking itself, because these are these are very creative, very intelligent people. And they're 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 illuminated by their ideas you know they're lit up by them you know they're often intoxicated by them and i really want to kind of bring that intellectual excitement uh to to readers and almost give them a sense of what it felt like to be to be theorizing here um at this at this time and this place um about these problems and and why they sort of seemed so existential uh to these thinkers um and i guess zooming out a little further you know i i want to show how the story of modern legal thought is really tied into the story of the modern state. So that this big transformation from a world of empires to a world of states could not happen without a kind of intertangled and, and parallel transformation in the sort of epistemological bases of, of legal thought, uh, full stop. So, you know, I really tell the story of, of legal thought over 100 years um, from debates about whether it counts as a sort of empirical social science or as a more normative abstract philosophy and show how and why these transformations in statehood and sovereignty pulled and pushed uh, legal thought um, uh, you know, in these different directions and really forced people to grapple with what law was <laughs> in the first place or in a really foundational uh, sense. And that's especially true for the problem um, of the, the beginning and ends of sovereignty, right, the life and death of states. So I, I really show how Hans Kelsen's pure theory of law um, you know, was being written in in the in the cauldron of the First World War in in the years before the war, during the war, and immediately after. And it's it's mostly jurists, like people in law schools, who've written about Hans Kelsen. And um, you know, they, they kind of don't comment on this as though that 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 context, you know, wasn't super relevant here. And so I think once you place these people back in in context, you can see how and why they they came to the ideas uh, they did, and it, it really cracks open these very abstract ideas and re returns kind of full color and life and, and energy to them. Um, uh, so I'm interested in 1918, 1919 as this huge kind of conceptual earthquake uh, for law too. Um, uh, and and I guess zooming out even a step further, um, you know, I, I see this as sort of philosophically tied to a deeper set of problems about the relationship of, of sovereignty and time. Um, because it had been this sort of um, oft remarked, remarked upon feature of writing on the early modern states, so on the emergence of the idea of the modern state, uh, you know, in, in general, that it required a new idea of the immortality of the state, right, of the intergenerational legal continuity of the state. So someone like Thomas Hobbes says the state requires an artificial eternity of life. Uh, why? Because if you wanted to have things like, you know, if you wanted legal order to survive despite 
the death of a monarch or the fall of a particular government, then you needed an idea of the state that continued unchanged despite those other sort of ruptures. Um, It was necessary for things like state treaties, which you wanted to be continuous, again, despite the fall of of a monarch or the change of a regime, or things like public debt that also continued over intergenerationally. Uh, And so you needed to kind of generate this idea of the state as an abstract entity that was separate to these more human life scales or time scales. Um, So readers may have come across the very famous book by Ernst Kantorowicz called uh, The King's Two Bodies, where he kind of gave us this nice shorthand for that process, where tracing how medieval and early modern thinkers began to think of the king as having two bodies, one fleshed and mortal, and uh, the other understood as abstract and perpetual, and, and that became, you know, the state. So that's a really kind of major theme in the, the early modern intellectual history of the state. And I was curious that no one had sort of traced it into the modern period. Like what happens to that set of ideas about the legal immortality of the state in the 20th century, right? In an era of huge rupture and change in the sovereign order, right? An era of when so many states, so many imperial states are collapsing and so many new states are being born. And so this book is also a history of that idea of the sort of legal life of a state um, in an era in which that sort of immortality could be no longer be presumed in the way that perhaps it had in the 19th century. So there's a sort of philosophical story there that, that runs all the way through the book um, and kind of, I think, comes to fruition um, at its end. Lovely. And last but not least, where has this intellectual journey taken you? Uh, what are you currently working on? <laughs> yes, it's it is a funny moment actually. Like you, you know, these, these these first book projects, they're with you so long. You know, I started thinking about this working on this project a decade ago, <laughs> and so it's it's a very exciting moment for me now. Actually, be getting to step back and and sort of um, begin to roam around a bit intellectually and and um, enjoy new stimulation and new fields and not read quite as instrumentally for a little while and and explore and have some period of intellectual renewal. I have a number of projects um, that are ongoing. I mean, um, at some point, I'm looking forward to writing some more about Red Vienna. uh, And so there are sort of some Austrian components. But actually, the project I'm tackling in the first instance um, looks at international law and order in the first half of the 20th century from a different vantage point. Um, At the moment, I'm calling the project Laws of Water, Air, Earth and Fire, Sovereignty Among the Elements. And it's about um, uh, a new set of um, kind of crises around the demarcation of the state in the era of the two world wars. So if you think about a classic turn of the century definition um, of the state, one of its key things it needs is clearly demarcated borders. And I'm interested in the way in which the two world wars um, and all the new technologies that are developed um, uh, in connection with them put huge new pressure on that idea of demarcated boundaries. So if you think about, you know, airplanes flying over borders and dropping bombs, if you uh, think about um, submarines and blockades and um, radio signals and and all kinds of things that no longer respected or paid any heed to uh, these borders on the ground, um, I'm interested in sort of the crisis that that produces uh, in thinking about the natural frontiers uh, of the state, um, the state in space. And so I'd like to pursue each element of that, like the problem of the state up into the air and out to sea, and even the problem then of the earth. Um, 
uh, as 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 kind of different nodes of controversy and uncertainty um, about sovereignty uh, in this period. And you know, I envisage this project really as I hope. Um, a way into historicizing some of our own anxieties about things like the Anthropocene and what it means to have this um, global geography of of statehood where, you know, the world is carved up into these individual states um, that that can't really address um, the major environmental and and um, climate problems that, of course, yeah, again, don't respect borders. You know, uh, these natural processes, you know, move blithely across them. And so this kind of problem of the, the mismatch between um, um, our decision-making spaces, to use Charlie May's term, and uh, and these natural processes that spill over them. Um, I'm interested in sort of getting at the longer history of that problem and um, resurrecting a sort of longer tradition of thinking about the state in space or the state kind of in nature um, and how it react, how how the ideas of sovereignty interact with a much more fluid and porous uh, natural environment. I, for one... Cannot wait to see what comes out next out of your uh, intellectual workshop. <laughs> That's um, so kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> my pleasure. Dr. Wheatley has been a real joy having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, uh, my absolute pleasure. And I, I always really enjoy the New Book Network interviews. So um, thank you for all the work you all do. <laughs>